And so I think you can see there how we can emerge from our silos to come together to to provide um, whatever is needed for a new family to start its life off well here in the city. Um, we have a wonderful relationship with folks who run facilities, with our public safety officers, with um, folks at the library. So I think everybody plays their part because that's the whole point. We're a community and every part of that community is needed to make a life happen. This is Emily Shields. I'm Marisol Morales. And I'm Andrew Seligson, and this is the Compact Nation podcast. How's everybody doing? Is uh, excitement about the Iowa caucus uh, beginning to boil over out there in the Middle West? I would describe it as a fever pitch. Yeah, I uh, got pulled, which hasn't happened in a long time, maybe because I never answer the phone, but... That was a pretty exciting opportunity. One of my friends got pulled too, and we were trying to figure out the meaning of this. But towards the end, she got asked questions like, have you eaten in an Indian restaurant in the last 10 years? And have you been hunting in the last 10 years or something like that? Those are very strange questions together. Yeah, yeah. We were trying to figure out what (laughs) that was trying to get at and how it might be used. I didn't get anything like that. Mine was pretty straightforward candidate issue demographic questions. That's interesting. And was this a landline that you answered or cell phone? No, cell phone. I don't don't have a landline. Yeah. No, I'm interested. I just that transition has been so slow for pollsters. I do know. I mean, I don't know if this would have anything to do with it. Right. But there's been in this whole landscape of micro targeting and this and that uh, interest in these kind of cultural categories because if you're targeting ads and all that on social media and those things, knowing people who have behavior X might have, you know, propensity Y in the political realm is useful. But it, were these clearly media polls and not, um, in other words, were they independent pollsters as opposed to campaigns polling you? That for sure was an independent pollster. Both of them were um, polling companies. But no, actually not super clear whether it was a campaign. Neither were leading in any way if it was a campaign. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't a push poll, definitely. And it didn't ask more questions about one candidate over another. But you never know. Uh, It's not always easy to identify that. Um, Yeah. And then my caucus site is uh, getting moving and we're going to have national and international media coverage. A Swiss news organization just asked the other day to join us. So that's fun. Cool. There was a story on uh, NPR today with uh, some Chicago high school students in Iowa, like going door to door and learning about the caucusing and stuff like that. So yeah, it's been pretty cool. I will be heading up, heading up with my partner in life, Martina and my mom to, uh, New Hampshire this weekend, hopefully catching a couple candidates in action on the stump there. So, uh, yeah, getting our regional dose in the the little state to our north. What else is going on out there, Marisol, in Chicago? 
Uh, in Chicago, it's cold. Uh, but what's also happening is uh, here, the Puerto Rican community has been organizing to um, collect money and send uh, resources and donations to Puerto Rico for um, the earthquake victims. Um, and so a lot of like community action uh, around that, which is um, very exciting. And uh, a few folks that I know have gone down there personally to like offer services, music and other mental health um, work down there. So, um, you know, the community moving together when the government can't the story of our lives. Or government won't, as in this case. Yeah, well, can't and won't is in some ways the the same thing there. Yeah. Uh, Any exciting upcoming Campus Compact events we should be letting people know about? I'm definitely getting excited for the National Conference. Okay, uh, yeah, our team is real fired up for that. And I think we have all our, all our plans set and I'm presenting. So definitely already. Yep. That's all done. Uh, ready to go. Those slides have been polished. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been, yep. Yeah, what not, are you presenting not, about, Emily? We have been doing um, versions of this engaged faculty institute that our colleagues in California and the Mountain West established. And so we have several years of data now on the outcomes for both faculty and community partners. And in particular, looking at the impact of having community partners participate in the institute alongside faculty members. So we'll be presenting some on that. Um, We've also been using a new syllabus rubric to evaluate the, those courses. And we'll be talking a little bit about that tool. So kind of a mix of things around faculty development and community engaged courses. So I'm excited about that. We're still working on some of the research though. Honestly, we just got back a bunch more data from fall 2019 courses. So a little bit of work left to do, but it'll be coming together in time for March. We have lots of exciting presentations on, uh, things like that and other things at the conference I've been excited about the way the agenda has shaped up. Um, And another thing that's happening as part of the conference events for the first time, we'll be having an awards event uh, with our, some of our existing awards as well as new awards. And we've been reading uh, the nominations for institutional awards for two and four year colleges and for uh, community engagement professionals and I've been blown away by just, you know, again, seeing it with a lot more detail than I often focus on at individual institutions, the uh, just the nature of the work that's happening, the depth, the commitment of, you know, as I've been looking at these institutional award nominations, the wide range of people on campuses who are getting involved in engagement work and the kinds of community-based organizations, government uh, agencies, et cetera, that people are connecting with, it's uh, its fantastic. And it's it also, you know, again, I think if we had been doing this, these awards 10 or 15 years ago, we just would not have seen in, in any significant numbers, the depth of work that we're seeing now. So it's it feels like just a great success for the many, many people over now, a quite a long period who've helped to move us forward. But that's exciting. And I think by the time this podcast is out in the world, we will hopefully have shared some of those new award winners, but it'll be right around that same time. Uh, and we'll be able to celebrate them out in Seattle in March. 
Yeah, exactly. And our Seattle conference will include um, site visits to communities uh, in Seattle through some of our uh, university partnerships, uh, and then also an embedded institute with a place-based justice network. So really excited about um, those offerings and our keynotes. So should be a great uh, conference. Looking forward to that. And then we also have the deadline coming up for our new and civic fellows, February 3rd. So folks should be on that, nominate your students and uh, get them in. And just so, since we were talking about our national conference for fans of the Compact Nation podcast, we will be doing a live recording of the podcast at the conference. I think this will be the third time we've done that at a camp, Campus Compact conference. Uh, that sounds right to me. Uh, it's always a lot of fun. So uh, we will give some more details about that and it'll be on the program uh, when folks come out. So hopefully we will get to see and meet many of you at the live recording at the national conference. All right. Well, I'm excited to uh, pivot toward our interview for this segment. I had the opportunity to sit down with Dia Abdo. Dia is an associate professor of English in the Department of English and Creative Writing at Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina. And she is this year's recipient of the Thomas Ehrlich Award for Civically Engaged Faculty. Among many other things that she has done, Dia founded Every Campus a Refuge, which began with a project at Guilford to uh, leverage the resources of the campus and its community to support refugee families. And Dia uh, decided to go from there to building an organization that would support similar efforts on campuses across the country to uh, support faculty, students, staff who wanted their campuses to become welcoming places for refugees new to the country. Uh, so uh, she's uh, a terrific scholar, a terrific teacher, uh, an activist and leader in the community who has brought those things together for real impact for uh, these new Americans coming from a variety of difficult circumstances. Uh, and so we will go to that interview now. Dia Abdo, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So we are excited at Campus Compact to have the opportunity to celebrate your work. And so I'd love to just begin by uh, kind of getting out on the table what it is you've been up to that led to your being selected for the Ehrlich Award. And there's, I think, a number of things, but I want to start with Every Campus a Refuge and really just to get a sense of what is what is that project? So when we talk about ECAR or Every Campus a Refuge, what is it? Um, <clears throat> so what I do has really evolved over time and began very simply um, with um, a simple idea, which is why can't we use our campus to host refugees? Um, this idea was inspired um, by Pope Francis, who in 2015 called on every parish in Europe to host a refugee family. So in early 2016, um, we started hosting refugees on our campus. Um, I um, very 
boldly or naively, depending on how you look at it, uh, walked into um, Guilford College's president's uh, office, Jane Fernandez, and, and said, Jane, I need a house on campus. And she said, yes. Um, and uh, as I said, in early 2016, we started hosting refugees on our campus and uh, providing them with what we'd like to really describe as a softer landing and a stronger beginning in their resettlement experience. Um, refugees um, stay on our campus um, for an average of five months, sometimes as long as eight months in a, in a house that's dedicated to the program. Um, we provide them with community support, social support, cultural support, um, but also material support. Um, so the house, its utilities, the facilities uh, are all free of charge. Um, and we've been doing that ever since. So as of right now, we've hosted over 50 individuals on our campus. Um, 26 of them have been children. We have hosted families, large and small, 11 member families to single cases. And um, they have come from Syria, from Iraq, from uh, Rwanda, from the DRC, from Uganda, from the Sudan. Um, and um, our students um, are involved as trained volunteers. Um, they do all sorts of things. Um, they provide ESL instruction, um, childcare. Um, they help with um, understanding how transportation works in Greensboro, um, with supporting families as they fill out forms for the DSS, with looking for jobs, um, with filling out forms for employment. Um, and so over time that has evolved that simple really idea of hosting folks, um, which is what campuses do all the time, except we call them students, um, has evolved into a more, um, or at least now has a curricular arm. Um, and so now there is um, a program, a curricular program that is also attached to every campus of refuge where students are learning about forced migration and resettlement and earning the credit of doing the work of hosting, supporting, volunteering, as well as creating and implementing projects that advocate for and support uh, new Americans and especially new North Carolinians. And how, what, so who else is playing what kind of role? So you, you helped get this started. The president signed on. Students are getting involved in that direct way. Are there other faculty members involved, other staff involved? How is that, how, how is that unfolding as it kind of has grown into an organized ongoing effort? Right. So the idea behind a program like Every Campus a Refuge, and really it's inspired by Greensboro as a refugee resettlement city or as a welcoming city, is that um, multiple organizations, um, stakeholders, community members, groups, organizers, activists, educators um, come together to provide whatever is needed. Um, and so we complete the, each other's picture. We complete the puzzle. And um, I think on a microcosm, sort of it works that way on our campus. Um, and so lots of folks are involved. And so not only am I involved as a faculty member, we have other faculty members who are involved as volunteers, but they also teach classes that support the work that we do or supervise uh, particip participatory action research that supports and serves the communities that we support and serve. Um, we have folks who support us from career services, from the, especially I have a really um, wonderful example about the complementarity of um, the work that we do here on our campus. One of the um, folks that we hosted uh, from Iraq, 
um, is a calligraphist. He's an artist. And so uh, the art department um, um, provided him with a studio space and art supplies. And then our gallery exhibited his work. And so I think you can see there how we can emerge from our silos to come together to to provide um, whatever is needed for a new family to start its life off well here in the city. Um, we have a wonderful relationship with folks who run facilities, with our public safety officers, with um, folks at the library. So I think everybody plays their part because that's the whole point. We're a community and every part of that community is needed to make a life happen. And what, I mean, I'm, I'm just uh, sort of sitting here speculating. I'm assuming that in some way or ways, Guilford College must be a different place now than it was three years ago because of this work. Is, is that right? And if so, what, what what's different about it? I think uh, that is a really um, good question. Um, part of why every campus a refuge was able to happen at a place like Guilford College is precisely because of who or what Guilford College has always been. Um, and so, and of course that history itself is complicated and nuanced, um, but we are a Quaker institution. And um, one of the many things that inspired me beyond the Pope's call on every parish to host a refugee family and sort of this concept of radical hospitality that's really germane to all faith practices and um, is um, the, the history of Guilford College. Uh, we... Um, are very close to part of um, um, a, a wood uh, or a forest that was part of the Underground Railroad. So um, it's part of this community's DNA, especially the local Quakers, who helped escaping slaves um, on their journey from the south to the north. And so giving refuge, giving sanctuary in our very woods, in our very midst, is part of who we are. And we've continued that practice on through World War II. Um, we've hosted um, and were instrumental, in fact, um, in um, um, bringing um, Jewish professors um, out of Nazi Germany and hosting them on our campus. Um, and a big part of what for me is fascinating and very important about Quaker testimonies and Quaker ethos is the concept of stewardship. We are responsible, we are accountable for the resources at our disposal. How do we use those in ways that are just and are right? And so when I proposed this idea, it really was simply an extension or a continuation of that kind of legacy of mindfulness towards resource use and also holding ourselves accountable as a space um, that can, can and should be a sanctuary to um, human beings who um, are in need of a refuge. When, you know, I think many people, for example, hearing the Pope talk about uh, this this form of hospitality, et cetera, it sounds quite natural, but thinking of a college or university in this way may be uh, more challenging for some people's conceptions of what those institutions are about. And I'm wondering if you can say, why is it the right thing for a college or university to practice this form of, of radical hospitality? Um, so I think there are lots of answers. There are lots of ways that I can answer that question. Um, I want to say that campuses are institutions and these are for the most part, institutions that are built on the land of the displaced and the dispossessed. So we are accountable. We are part of a larger structure and a larger system that has facilitated the displacement 
and dispossession of, refu- of folks in this country and elsewhere. So I think on a very basic level, it's the right thing. It's the moral thing to do because we are part of this larger system that's responsible and accountable. The other thing is because we are uniquely, more than any other organization in the world, higher um, institutions of higher learning are uniquely equipped because they are very much like cities, right? And so when Pope Francis called it every parish, he meant every small community, like a small town. And if you think about it, there's no other organization that is exactly like that except a campus. We have housing, we have cafeterias, we have clinics, we have career services. We are a self-sufficient, self-regulating city. And so it makes perfect sense. And as I said, we do it all the time. We host folks all the time. We support them in their growth. Um, but we, we call them students. And, and I think it's that disconnect between thinking of refugees as somehow different from the, you know, the humans that we support and serve all the time um, that perhaps contributes that idea that, that this is not part of what we can and should do. Um, it, it, it really is we are uniquely equipped to do it. And I think we should rise to the challenge and, and set the pace for our communities in hospitality, in compassion, in accountability. So the, the politics of immigration, of refugee policy have uh, changed dramatically during the period you've been working on this. Um, I mean, there were there, there were directions that were already visible, but they've become more intense over this period in ways that I'm sure have affected refugees you've been working with. And I'm wondering how how has all that in Greensboro, North Carolina, affected the work you're doing, the way students see it, the way the families you're serving are experiencing it? What's what's that meant for all of you? It certainly meant that it's more urgent and more necessary. And so we do it with greater commitment, with greater urgency. Um, we understand that there is a bigger gap now that needs to be filled. We understand that there is um, significant need for myth busting, for misinformation busting, um, that we play um, an even more important role in educating our communities and raising awareness about these issues. Um, And so for me, that goes hand in hand with doing the work. And so if we're going to model an understanding, model um, an appreciation for fact, um, model compassion and empathy um, in our rhetoric so that we can combat xenophobia and immigrant phobia and refugee phobia. Um, that we can do that while educating, but we can also do that by putting our resources where our mouth is, right? And making sure that we live out that talk. Um, so it seems to me that that work has increased in urgency and, um, and so we do it even um, more strongly. So every Campus of Refuge started at Guilford, uh, but I know it hasn't stopped at Guilford. So can you talk about uh, how you have taken it beyond the Guilford campus to other institutions and what, what that has looked like? Right. So I think that's part of what um, I spent a lot of my time um, doing is trying to invite other campuses to mobilize their resources in similar ways. Um, And so thankfully that has happened, um, as you mentioned earlier, because of the shifting policies um, and because of the lowering of the caps on refugee admission into this country, um, 
lots of um, refugee resettlement agencies have had to close down or significantly diminish their staffing. This has meant that many college and university campuses that would have had the ability to collaborate with a refugee resettlement agency to do this work are now not as able to do so. Um, But um, we have managed to um, um, sort of include in our work several other campuses, including Wake Forest University here in North Carolina, but Lafayette um, College, Agnes Scott, Rollins. Um, So there are um, a handful of colleges and universities that are also doing this work or have done this work at least once. And, And that is part of the call is we at Guilford College do this consistently. Wake Forest does it consistently. But if you're a campus that's interested in doing this, you can only or would like to do it only once and see how that goes. Um, and so really the call is on every campus to host a refugee family. Do it one time um, and see um, see if that's something that you can commit to for a longer period of time. So one explanation for how things start has to do with kind of the practical need in the world. Another has to do with uh, the specific interests, motivations, concerns of the people who decide to take action. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, why Pope Francis's call, for example, landed for you in a way that wasn't just information and interesting, but was a call to action that that changed what you were spending your time on. Yeah, so I think a lot of it um, came from my own history, my own personal experiences, and then my own um, sort of journey in this country. Um, I was born in Jordan to Palestinian parents who became refugees in 1967. And I was raised by my grandmother, and I grew up on her stories of Palestine and um, what it meant to leave to lose home, to try and find and not find home, and what it meant to be living in the alternate homeland, as we call Jordan. And so I feel the refugee struggle keenly. Um, It means to be an outsider um, and um, to be waiting maybe decades um, for a kind of welcome that would make you feel like you belonged. But most of my life I've lived as an English professor. And so I've tried to tease out those um, stories of nostalgia and yearning and diaspora in my teaching of literature, right? So I teach Arab women writers and um, I'm really interested, um, especially in people on the move and gendered bodies on the move, what it it means for a woman, you know, like my grandmother to be illiterate and to take her children and to walk across the River Jordan and to, you know, settle in a refugee camp for a while and make a living for herself and then support her children. Um, and then, you know, it just got harder every year to rationalize um, what I was doing in the classroom as enough, right? When there are, are rivers of blood, millions of people um, displaced and dispossessed, there's only so much that I can say I'm doing in the classroom, right? Because what I was doing was trying to sort of teach people that I was hoping would go into the world and do something. And I I wanted to sort of take out the middle person. Um, And so when Pope Francis made that call, um, it made me feel energized because for once I could do something with the physical space I was in, which was a college campus beyond the teaching and beyond the educating. I could do something physical embodied 
with that space. Um, and I think what also struck me um, is um, my own understanding of a college campus from an, uh, an Arabo-Islamic perspective. So the word for campus in Arabic is haram, al-haram al-jami'i. And haram quite literally means a place that's inviolable, a place of sanctuary, a place of refuge. And so I think all of those came together for me um, in, a, in a moment of um, really enlightenment um, that, that this place, this Quaker place, um, this campus space that draws on tradition of sanctuary and refuge, um, and then our own resource-rich um, um, campus um, and the little sort of small part that it can play um, just manifested itself in this, I think, very simple idea. Um, When you think about the the part of you that is the English professor uh, in your teaching and your scholarly work, are there ways that you feel that the, the experiences you've had now over these last three plus years have changed you as a scholar, as a teacher? Uh, yeah. What's different about you as a professor than, than was the case before you began this practical work? Um, thank you. That's a great question. I think I have always been invested in story and narrative. And now I think for me, the purpose of story and narrative has been more concretized. What does one do with the story? What does one do with the narrative? The English professor in me um, at times, um, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I still do that, is satisfied to sort of pick apart a text. There's joyfulness in that, right? In the work of the discipline, in understanding how words connect together, why an author makes that choice. There's something really beautiful and joyful about that. Um, but I think moving forward with that idea and then asking ourselves, and then what? What does this story serve? How does this contribute to the creation of a of a more important narrative um, that that can change lives, that can make material difference. Um, I think that for me, what has changed. And so a lot of my teaching now moves from looking, from seeing, to then self-reflecting, to then doing. What are, what are reactions, responses from students, uh, either things that are consistent with what you might have expected, things that are, are not consistent with what you might have expected? Um, so I think the reactions have been incredibly empowering, powerful, and positive. I think there are times when not only institutions, but also especially individuals ask themselves, what can I do? Right? It's The issue is so large. Um, how can I contribute anything? <laughs> um, and so I think the idea that um, that they can contribute in a way that aligns with their morals, with their values, with their disciplinary interests, um, has been really empowering um, for our students. And you talked a little bit about faculty getting involved through participatory action research. What are some of the kinds of questions that your colleagues and you are investigating? Where has that gone so far? Yeah, so um, we are conducting two research studies that are tracking the impact of um, the program on the resettlement experience of the refugees that we've hosted um, with the purpose of improving 
um, and finessing um, our best practices. Um, and then also tracking the experiences of the volunteers um, to make sure that we are they are prepared um, and that that what they're getting out of the program is what we have planned for them to get out of it. Um, and so we're really trying to track the experiences of folks who are participating in this endeavor to make sure that we are fulfilling our own ethical responsibilities in carrying out this work. And are, are there things that have sort of already been learned as a result of those investigations or is it too early? What's what's the story with that? Um, I think what we've learned um, for the most part is that um, we do provide a softer landing and a stronger beginning, um, but that there are areas that we can um, potentially uh, do more of, um, especially in advocating um, for employment, um, in advocating for or supporting folks um, as they look for affordable and safe housing, um, housing especially um is a big issue. Um, uh, affordable and safe housing is sparse. Um, and so that's that's something that we continue to work on in our community. Is there anything I didn't ask you that, that, you, that I should have or anything you'd like to share uh, about this experience uh, or for others who might be considering uh, the question of whether to, to jump in and play a role? I think the, um, a lot of the questions that I get asked from people um, when I give this talk about ECAR or, you know, please, please adapt ECAR is um, what does it cost? <laughs> so in other words, you know, just the, sort of the nitty gritty, what is the institutional commitment? Um, it, it's helpful for people to hear that it is actually um, not an expensive program. If the college provides the housing, um, then much of what the family needs can be raised um, through fundraisers um, of in-kind donations. Um, so it's a fairly inexpensive program. And um, just like any other college program, it is covered by the institution's um, insurance. So uh, folks also have questions about liability issues and things like that. So and if people do want to pursue this, get involved, how should they how should they get information or get in touch? Um, people can email me directly. Hopefully you can provide um, my email in the podcast somewhere. But we also have a website, everycampusarefuge.net. Um, and um, folks can find a lot of information there. We also have a manual of best practices um, that we are happy to share with interested folks. Excellent. Yes, we will put links to all those things in the show notes uh, and we can put Dia's email there uh, as well. Uh, well, I just want to say, you know, I think I mentioned to you, I personally, one of the reasons this spoke to me so much is I am also the, the child of a refugee. My father was a refugee uh, from Nazi Germany. And, you know, the, the, the point you were making about kind of women in in the refugee experience, his mother came here with two children, having lost her husband to the Nazis. And he ultimately found in many ways his first home at Haverford College, another Quaker liberal arts college. Uh, so there was just a lot about this that that really resonated for me. And the idea that, it, you know, partners in this work of higher education engagement are providing homes uh, and through it connecting 
connecting students and connecting faculty and connecting staff to uh, these new Americans that that just spoke to me in a very deep way. So I uh, yeah, I really I really appreciate the work you and your colleagues and your students are doing. And uh, we're very, very pleased that we have the opportunity to share your work through this podcast, through the award. Uh, So thank you so much for what you're doing and for being a guest on the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's an honor. And I am excited to meet you all um, at the end of March in Seattle. We will see you there. And everybody else is welcome to join us. (laughs) Thank you so much. We are back, and as is our practice, we are going to turn to some things going on in our world that spark a little joy. Emily, what do you have for us? Well, I got to turn back to the caucuses again because our member campuses are just really um, committed to engaging their students in the democratic process. We have campuses who Uh, have signed up to be satellite caucuses, who are already caucuses, who are hosting national debates, who are hosting mock caucuses, who are spending a lot of time and energy bringing candidates to campus and making sure students get to engage with them. So it's just really great to see how much, you know, students in Iowa really do get a front and center view on our democracy and the colleges and universities here are certainly helping them make the most of that. So uh, that's exciting for me, of course. Marisol, what is sparking joy in the land of Lincoln? Well, I have to say one of the things uh, for me that sparked joy this week is um, sort of honoring uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and so many more um, like posts and information out there uh, that doesn't whitewash his, his legacy, but, you know, really puts forth, uh, you know, the poor people's campaign, you know, the sort of radical statements that, that he made and just, um, more truth to, uh, MLK than I think we've seen previously. So that's sparks joy. And then also the mothers in Oakland who, um, were evicted and then, but sort of are winning back the right to, to have the house that they um, were squatting in um, and calling attention to the issue around affordable housing. So people action uh, sparks my joy this week. And you, Andrew, what sparks joy for you? Yeah. uh, I'm going to predictably talk about spin class. Yeah, so I I have a long history of uh, spinning, but then had not, uh, since I moved a year and a half, two years ago, had not found a spin location that kind of fit in the patterns. Uh, But Martina and I yesterday went to a, a YMCA that we had not been to before. We have been a member of and spinning at various Ys and doing other things. But we went to the Huntington Avenue Y here in Boston. And um, so here are the reasons this sparked joy for me. It's So I find in general at the Y, uh, this vibe that's very like people in the class, very racially diverse, 
because it's not expensive to go to the Y. It's people from you don't have to be rich to uh, to be spinning at the Y. Uh, people with all kinds of body types and levels of fitness, and there's just a comfort in that that everybody's there just to do what they're doing, and it's not a space of a lot of judgment and whatever. And that's just like one of the the few places in the world that has like racial and social and cultural diversity, diversity in age. There's all kinds of, I'm definitely on the older side uh, for the people there, but uh, all kinds of folks there uh, doing something that's, you know, like just healthy and is fun and uh, very positive. So it just uh, in a city that is often very segregated in all kinds of ways. um, And it, you know, it's good to have spaces like that. And I think it's not uh, coincidental that it's a nonprofit organization that's creating that opportunity because it's it's something that wouldn't be consistent with kind of maximizing the revenue from each individual participant uh, in the way that for-profit companies obviously have to approach those things. So uh, that is what, what sparked joy for me. That's it from us at the Compact Nation podcast. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to rate and review our show. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at podcast at compact.org or join us on social media with the hashtag Compact Nation Pod. And Emily, Marisol, thank you both very much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye, everybody. Bye. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in the Leather District of Boston, Massachusetts. Our hosts are Marisol Morales, Emily Shields, and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Altiorem Leeper. Music is by Andrew Savage. You can find more of his music at andrewsavage.net. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compactnationpod. Thanks for listening. I am the podcat.